Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crowdcast Podcast. I'm your host, Nate. And to join today, I'm joined by Mr. Nick Whitaker, the curator of the Madras Crocodile Bank. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks, thanks. Nice to be on here. So, uh, Nick, you want to start us off on how you first kind of got into reptiles and how you first got involved with the uh, Crocodile Bank? Sure. Well, actually, I mean, to be frank, it was not really a choice. It was sort of, it, it, it just sort of happened. It, it was meant uh, to be because uh, from, from the time I was in high school uh, on vacation, I had volunteered here at the uh, Rock Bank and they were, yes, every vacation I do that. And um, there's a lot of stuff always going on. And so I got to see a lot of different um, people doing different um, things, all the way from studying um, environmental sex determination in crocodiles, um, and of course, catching crocodiles, which of course is a lot of fun. <laughs> and yeah, we, um, looking, um, well, not handling, but yeah, from a safe, safe distance, looking at our King Cobra collection, which we had at the time, and we um, bred uh, 30 of them and sent them to different zoos uh, around Asia. Uh, the one thing about that was that a lot of a lot of zoos catch catch. Uh, uh, hello, he cut out. Uh, I'm not, I'm not hearing anything on my end. Sorry. Uh, that was a power cut there. Oh, okay. Uh, back. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so the, a lot of the, uh, pings are caught from the wild and, uh, using, uh, I mean, uh, nooses and really unconventional, very unhealthy ways. So they last all of six months in captivity and then die and then. So, so this is a way of sort of bringing them into zoos as captive bred animals. Um, yeah. So, uh, you want to give us a little history on the uh, of the bank itself, how it got started, and so on. Sorry. Uh, you want to give us a little bit of history on the uh, the Croc Bank itself? Yeah, it was uh, started in uh, nineteen seventy six. It's about uh, 45 kilometers from the uh, um, city of uh, Chennai. And at that time, there was very little uh, development on the coast. So it, it was a very uh, potted road. And maybe like uh, at that time, I think the entrance fee was maybe like 10 cents equivalent of. Hmm. And, yeah, so the, the collection just started with a bunch of uh, natural aquifers, which were manually dredged, and uh, it had a population of um, mugger crocodiles, or marsh crocodiles. So that was the beginning, and then we eventually got um, saltwater crocodiles and then garales. And so we had the three Indian species. Um, and then in the 90s, in the 80s, rather, uh, we decided to an international gene bank so hence the name crocodile bank uh, i get a lot of questions when i say i'm calling from the crocodile bank because people are wondering which i've never heard of this bank what kind of scam is this but yeah anyway so that's the idea the, the banking for the gene pool to keep on um, for internationally also at which time uh we also realized that the uh, 29 species of turtles and tortoises you found in you find in India were really getting uh, hammered by um, largely consumption for food, particularly the uh, larger species, the larger soft shells and hard shells like the uh, Ganges softshell turtle, the river terrapin, and. Um, Spotted pond turtles, uh, red-crowned roof turtles, Badagur uh, kachuta, and several others. So that was so we expanded everything from there. Yeah. 
So uh, currently, what all do you have at the uh, Croc Bank? So, um, I guess what really opened my eyes to uh, herpetological zoo uh, uh, collections, I'll start with that first, is uh, when I, I volunteered with the St. Augustine alligator farm, I think that was in 98, and that's, that's when I saw so many species I hadn't seen, and that's crocodilian-wise. And then um, I was invited to uh, Germany, where I uh, saw the, uh, we took a trip to the Prague Zoo, which was really incredible, and seeing all of these, um, these reptiles kept, kept so well. And there I made a few con uh, connections and um, among our, our friends there. And so that's how today we have, um, Cuban crocodiles, uh, Siamese crocodiles, uh, Morlets crocodiles, and, um, yeah, American alligators, of course, African slender spotted crocodiles. And that's that's a weird one because we've had this happen a couple of times, but um, we have two females, but we actually found fertilized eggs this year, so. It's, there's something strange going on. We, we've seen that also with our Thomas Toma pair, the hmm. false carrier, and Yakari came in. So it's very exciting, but they usually, the development stops after a couple of weeks. But yeah, to see the band, bands indicating fertility on the eggs is very exciting. But, um, and we also have uh, modified the place so that people can have um, a different different view of crocodiles rather than the usual top-down perspective. We have uh, one of our first captive bred gorillas. Um, his name is Garfield. Uh, he's he's in an underwater setup. So he's about three meter long, three meters long, and uh, it's really really cool to actually see his animals face up rather than the other way. Yeah. Um, so in terms of, sorry. Go ahead. In terms of snakes, we have both uh, green and yellow anacondas, uh, um, common cobras, Russell's vipers, soft-scale vipers, um, common crates, monosal cobras, um, rock pythons. Yeah, and of course the komodos, which which are really fascinating, incredibly intelligent. It sort of like big puppies That's the best way to describe them i've noticed that over the years people who everyone i talk to who's worked with komodos always describes them as like a basically a big scaly dog almost yes yes yeah so uh are there any uh particular conservation or catch breeding projects uh you're working on at the moment well, that's sort of that's in the pipeline, but certainly for the river terrapin, uh, Barigrobasca. That's 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 uh, only found in India. I mean, um, because it was previously thought that this Barigrobasca genus uh, species was also found in uh, Malaysia, but now that's Barigrobafinis. And of course, when you have long-ranging species and you find that, oops, actually they're only found in this area, these localities, that's a taxonomic change, but it's also a, it also means that the species is even more in danger. Um, so we have uh, about 30 of these, which are about dinner plate sized, which were hatched in 2016, 2017, and that, that's the plan to uh, put satellite transmitters on them and um, do a repatriation. So that's one of the main things we're focusing on now. But yes, I mean things things take time, uh, permissions, approvals, and of course um, you want to make sure that the animals are going to survive. So the proper soft release techniques, uh, all all of this have to be figured out, um, and not releasing them 
I mean, they share the same habitat as saltwater crocodiles, but yeah, really seeing them a bit further upriver than where the salties would be, so they don't get um, crunched. And yeah, and of course, in places which aren't frequented by uh, illegal fishing and blasting and that kind of thing. Yeah, to do a full full assessment. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that, well, you mentioned that uh, when you're releasing turtles, you have to release them kind of upstream of where salties are. And you also mentioned you have salties at the croc bank. Uh, just speaking as American, kind of our cultural view of salties is almost exclusively Australian thing. But not a lot of people over here realize they go all the way over to uh, India. So uh, you want to talk about uh uh, salty status in India? Yeah, well, in of course, in Australia and Indonesia, they've really bounced back from what, what they were in the 50s and 60s uh, to the point where I, I believe that the uh, population uh, counts have indicated that they're, they're back to, uh, I mean, pre-colonial levels. And that's, of course, a problem. They're a big crocodile. They they need to eat. They don't distinguish between people and um, wild boar, buffaloes. If you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you can get taken. Uh, every year in India, I think we have uh, about six or seven attacks. And usually, uh, usually they're they're fatal attacks because they're usually larger crocodiles, which are yeah. well empowered. Well well able to uh, take people down and also i guess a lot of people don't know about um populations in the uh, andaman islands andaman and nicobar islands where that's that's become a real problem because it's uh, it's affecting uh, tourism because you can't swim in these a lot of these places that have these beautiful corals and uh, Creeks adjoining these corals is where salties like to hang out. So there's a lot of stakeholders involved there, uh, including uh, everybody from the taxi drivers to roadside vendors depend on tourism. So if people are going to associate these, the Andaman Islands with saltwater crocodile attacks, then not many people are going to visit there. They'd like to go somewhere, I mean, Thailand is just a couple hundred kilometers away, so why, why not go there instead of a place which is being named for its uh, saltwater crocs? Yeah, and again, it's uh, I think their least concern under under the uh, IUCN's uh, red list, but like these wide-ranging species and. We're pretty sure that if if uh, if you did did uh, some genetics, you'd probably find different um, subspecies, or maybe even different species. Uh, and then again, the question of how to treat them under IUCN is a is a whole thing. I mean, can you give a is it right to give a blanket uh, least threatened, or do you look at individual regions and reassess that sort of? And that's that's actually recently uh, been done with uh, the king cobras in India. You know, we realized we have three different species now. Yeah, a few guests we talked to who've done work with uh, American crocodiles have said, pointed out the fact that a lot of their genomes are vastly different from different populations. In fact, I, I can't, can't remember exactly which guest, but one of them said that some American croc populations their genomes are closer to cuban crocodiles than to other american populations that's a bit of a quandary because they i guess there is some amount of uh hybrid hybridization in the wild yeah uh, now my knowledge of development and geography um in that part of the world is not so good, but uh, I think it had something to do with the building of the Suez Canal, which 
allowed these populations to sort of mingle and they were previously isolated but I mean, yeah. completely completely uh, off yeah so uh you just mentioned that uh king cobras have just been split up a bit uh has it been given a official scientific names yet or are they still waiting to get their official names uh yeah they were i mean they've they've been there has it has been published uh, they have been split um i i i guess they must have their, their own uh, their own names I mean, right now right now i don't remember i just know that it's it's three different distinct yeah and is that three species just in india or is that across the uh, entirety of their range uh just in india so just india alone you got three species wow yeah, so you got the philippines you got um all of indonesia that's again a vast range like like southeast yeah indochina southern china yeah yeah a lot of work to do there so uh you also mentioned uh you have uh komodo dragons you want to talk about um your work with them like training and stuff like that yeah uh they they are really um as i said they're really inquisitive animals and they they're able to um actually for their own i mean mental health i mean to have something to do I mean, you can just uh we do things like you get a coconut and put a like a piece of chicken inside uh, of course making sure that the coconut is not small enough for them to swallow and, yeah. and they'll they'll play with that for you know, a long time they're even just chucking in some straw which we did the other day it's just investigating investigating trying to getting underneath and digging around it and circling on it yeah but when they first uh, came here um i think in uh, 2014 they were just a couple of years old and uh about, uh, about a meter a meter long a little bit more and our first experiences with them is well i, I would just describe them as uh pretty crazy because they they were very fast and very and we hadn't i mean monitor lizards if you get inside their enclosure with our water monitors for example they're a bit shy uh, but these guys come towards you so we didn't quite know how to handle that so we needed a lot of input from other people and yeah so that was uh, sorted with protective gear and starting the whole training thing getting them accustomed to people and the difference between um food and people and yeah eventually get, getting them to go into crates do a crate training and when the enclosure has to be cleaned and yeah so on so it's been a it's been a pretty fast learning curve it had to be so yeah but now they're now they're about uh, like six six and a half feet long and much calmer sounds like they milled out with age then yeah 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 now well we do we we work with them every every week also and uh yeah we have um a male and a female that are adjacent to each other and they're separated by uh, a grill door we were not quite sure we wanted to uh, breed them yet because there would be very little outlet for hatchlings and yeah to give komodo dragons to another zoo they have to also again learn that it's a very different species of uh it's not a bengal monitor or um a desert desert monitor completely different animal yeah. that you have to respect and appreciate work with have patience and then yeah only then do you get somewhere with successfully keeping them in captivity yeah Excuse me. 
Um, so you, you mentioned before that you have a uh, Garials at the bank. Yep. Yep. Um, so do you do any like a uh, bridging projects or any sort of like public outreach and or education projects about with those? Uh, actually, the population is actually doing pretty well right now in the wild, and that whole aspect of repatriation is actually being handled by the uh, by the government. So they're actually collecting the eggs and then hatching, growing them to a certain size and then releasing them. So we don't do any uh, breeding for um, release of the species. So what we're usually doing um, breeding for is for exchange programs. So gotcha. Yeah. The situation in uh, the early 2000s was really, really bad because uh, they suddenly realized that we only had about 200 or 300 left, uh, which are individuals, which is which is when they become became from endangered, got went up to critically endangered. But now with um, protection, restocking, and yeah. Um, studies and the surveys to indicate that there's a substantial a fairly substantial um male adult male and uh, female um, population in particular on the chumbo river yeah. yeah i've heard the chumbo river is kind of a big stronghold of that species yeah that's that's maybe uh an example of a species uh, uh, rather a place that has been protected since the 1970s protected it as well as it, as well as it can be uh, and just left alone and yeah maybe there wouldn't be any gorilla if, if it hadn't been for the uh declaration of the sanctuary by the government in the 70s hmm. Let's see. so uh Do you know any more about the whole Garial situation in India beyond that? The situation in India as a Yeah. In in the wild. In the wild, um I think there's about seven hundred, eight in eight hundred uh, mature individuals right now. Yeah, I don't have that data um, right off uh right on me right now. Um yeah. so I may be a little bit off, but yeah, the main threats on the, for a lot of the uh, rivers uh, in India seem to be the um, barrages and dams, which are uh, because that, you know, at, at timing of release of water is crucial. And if this, if, you know, this millions, thousands of uh, cubic uh, feet of water suddenly re released, and uh, nests get flooded then that's that's not so good uh, yeah, that's happened happened a couple of times so there's many many stakeholders involved in including with water resources and forest department and tourism yeah 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 water is definitely the most important resource in the world so everyone's always yeah. fighting for a share of it exactly exactly uh so the third species of crocodilian you have in India is the uh, lugger or marsh croc. And yep. I don't know much about uh, their status and conservation, how they're doing in the wild personally. So do you mind give me a little walkthrough about buggers in general, I guess? Um, yeah, I guess there's uh, two states in India uh, where I'm. Uh, one is uh, Tamil Nadu, and another one is Gujarat, which probably are the strongholds of the population. And it's like an estimated well, at least seven to eight thousand animals in the wild, uh, with breeding breeding populations established at several places. And like saltwater crocodiles, they've yeah they've really bounced back. And this was probably due to um, the creation of uh, protected areas and also the. Uh, the rear and release technique, as it's called, as we talked about with gorillas, so getting them to a size where they'd be not prey to everything from, well, catfish to to 
birds, and um, everything, otters. Yeah. Yeah. Because in a natural population, you'd have probably about three or four percent of them surviving to adulthood. So, but when you have a species which is uh, in danger, you want to maximize survival as much as much as possible. Um, so much so that even they, they're especially in the state of Uttar, Uttar Pradesh and Gujarat, and it's emerging now in Tamil Nadu also. Um, human crocodile conflict is becoming uh, a bit, of, a rather a bit of a dilemma. Um, and on the Calvary River in uh, Tamil Nadu, um, where I uh, did part of my field work for my PhD, uh, there was a sizable population there. And yeah, there's a fair amount of antagonism towards towards the animals because they do take livestock. There have been fatal and non-fatal attacks. Um, a lot of them seem to... I mean, I looked at this over uh, 10 years between 2009 and 2019. And a lot of the attacks seem to be mistakes. I mean, they, they grab someone and then they realize that it's, oh, oops, this is something I'm not prepared to eat because it's people crouching in the water doing laundry or something and then they let go. So huh. yeah, lucky for them. But yeah, in other cases, it's not so, uh, you know, not such a nice outcome yeah. um, I guess the main uh, issue with this whole uh, study we we're doing was of course the onset of uh, COVID um, and we had a radio telemetry project there and we we're tracking two males and three females and then um, yeah just in June of 2019 we uh, got permission and attach these transmitters on the animals and then uh, uh, after that we couldn't go back to the field so it's, all that data is kind of uh, lost. Yeah. So yeah, we actually had interstate uh, travel restrictions between states and then that became between districts and then yeah, that meant we couldn't go back to the field. Gotcha. So, uh, uh, the way you describe mugger attacks is kind of weird. It almost sounds more like uh, shark attacks than uh, regular crocodile attacks. Because usually when a croc attacks, it's purposeful. Whereas a shark attacks almost always accidental, it seems like. Yeah. Well, it seems like a lot of the time there's uh, mistaken identity, especially when it's small, it's, it's uh, small children, or as I said, uh, people washing clothes or maintenance of uh, pumps there's a lot of water water abstraction so this whole land water interface as, as it's called um, becomes a, a great um, playing ground in quotes for both both mugger crocodiles and people and I guess the only thing is uh, one one way is I guess uh, removal and creation of maybe a a captive facility to hold animals which are maybe dangerous to people which means three meters and above but that again comes with and that can also double as a education center on what do's and don'ts uh in crocodile habitat and what their value is um when we're talking about value it's a little bit difficult um giving guidelines to people who have to work day in and day out with these animals uh, as compared to um, second or first world countries where there's not so much involvement with the with the rivers in the way of artisanal fishing, clothes washing and so on. So yeah, yeah, it's fine to sit in the office and make the draft these guidelines but on the ground it's, it's quite different. And again, yeah. you have the real, real issues of your captive center of the, uh, that was to be done is it has to be you have to look at husbandry the management of the animals and nutrition the food you can't just chuck in a one meter animal with a three meter animal they will get cannibalized 
there's there's a lot of guidelines that have to be followed, of course, for that. So, yeah. yeah. So, is there any other uh, research projects that you're involved in besides the that uh, bugger uh, radio tracking? Um, so then. Uh, a lot, so a lot of this stuff became ex situ. So uh, because of COVID, so it became within within the crop mark. So yeah, we did a study on uh, thermal biology, um, and this actually got got me to experience a lot of stuff which I, I normally wouldn't. Um, um, looking at deep body temperatures of uh, mugger females, um, looking at uh, uh, salinity. And um, while they're called uh, marsh crocodiles, uh, they actually are found in brackish water and salt water. And yeah, so I did some trials with them and expose, exposing hatchlings to different levels, different parts per thousand of salt, wa salt water, and they were actually able, able to handle it pretty well. So they, huh. they're maybe the one of the most I think adaptable of crocodilians. I mean, they they're living in close proximity to humans. Um, when there's no water, they they're able they travel overland for sometimes several kilometers to find water. Another strategy is to dig tunnels and burrows like some other species do, and sort of estivate in there. And then people talk to me about climate change and how that's going to affect you know these guys and. There's, yeah, I don't, I don't want to really get into that too much because there's a lot of debate here. But I, I read an article by somebody uh, quite noted uh, the other day about sea turtles and climate change, and what they were saying is that the world has always been cooling and warming, and so they're going to just adjust uh, to it. So I think. Yeah, they're, they're pretty uh, tenacious um, species. Yeah, you don't make a sense. You don't make a sense of time of the dinosaurs without being uh, a pushover. Yeah, I mean, of course, there's been a lot. The crocodilian has been a lot more specious in the past, and we've lost a lot of really cool animals that we, we would love to have seen right now. But yeah, we left it only uh yeah a couple of dozen but still they did persist yeah a lot better than some other groups so yeah uh you also mentioned you did a little research with uh environmental impact of uh uh sex uh sex determination with crocodilians yeah so that was uh, looking with looking at um uh, Largely with gharials, so that was uh, right here that we have from our own breeding group. We get um, well, we didn't didn't get any nests last year, but we got two this year, and then so we have essentially one male and seven females adults, and so March to April is their peak nesting season, and so once they've laid their eggs, females will defend their nests. Uh, people think of gharials as slow and clumsy, and but yeah, try to collect those eggs without um, you know having someone there with a stick to keep the female away. You'll find out pretty <laughs> fast that's, that's not they can really move. Yeah, so these huge eggs, uh, thirty or forty of them, about um, one hundred and fifty, one hundred and eighty grams. Sorry, I don't know how to translate that to uh, ounces. Or, yeah. So we keep them at different uh, temperature regimes in uh, constant temperature incubators and then see what gender is produced at what temperature. Um, so what is clear right now is like other crocodiles, it's no surprise that incubation temperature in influences uh, incubation period. Um, the higher the temperature, the faster the babies get out. 
but there's a problem with um, telling gender in these hatchlings because they're, they're, the uh, organs are not are not very visible. So you have to wait for a couple of years. So they're about 80 centimeters, one meter to actually accurately tell. So it is really an ongoing thing. And at this point, I wouldn't say anything uh, conclusive. So we've got some, it's got some preliminary data from animals. Right? Yeah. On the Swift, yeah. Will there be uh, any future developments with the uh, Crocodile Bank going forward? Uh, yes, we we plan to uh, develop it and a lot more underwater um, immersion immersion type enclosures and some new um, species. And yeah, with the way development is going here there's no there's no real um place for expansion so that that we also still have to we have to consider but yeah a lot more inter in uh, interpretation um and educational facilities uh, yeah so i uh... Back towards the very beginning, uh, you mentioned your the croc bank used to do a bunch of uh, captive breeding with king cobras. Uh, what was it like working with that particular species? So I was actually on, uh, about seventeen or eighteen at that time, so I was not actually handling them, but I did see people handling them, and they, they also seemed to, uh, apart from a couple of really mental specimens. Uh, they seem they seem to calm down after habituation to people, um, and they were actually they actually got um, accustomed to feeding on rats, as did the uh, offspring. So we we usually use uh, a snake a snake skin and make a really vile smelling soup with that snakeskin and sort of put a bit of that snakeskin around the rats and then that seemed to have some kind of olfactory trigger that oh okay this is snake so yeah that worked but people have also uh i think in uh, someone in europe has also used uh eels to uh, fed eels to them hmm. and that was yeah uh, when, when you're when you're not feeding a natural uh, prey item, there's always concerns about you know is this is, how is this going to affect their health and physiology and kind of thing. Yeah. But this in this case, it seemed to be okay. Right. Uh, so, does the croc bank still do any work with king cobras? Uh, yes. So we have a field station in the Western Ghats. Uh, it's an incredible uh, um, hotspot for for herbs and, and and birds and mammals too. Everything really fish, and so yeah, the Gumbay Rainforest Research Station uh, is located there in the Western Ghats, and um, we still do uh, take snake calls and. Uh, Relocations to different different places, taking them to different places. Uh, they're actually found a lot, a lot of the time close to human habitation, um, because well, the theory being is that there's a, it's a agricultural landscape, so there's uh, rodents there, and then there's rat snakes there, so king cobras follow, and yeah, so there there is a fair amount of uh, in that region, well, you can't wouldn't say really conflict, but there's a amount, amount of contact because it's because people are very uh, tolerant of them. They they actually sometimes say, "No, there's no need to come over. We'll we'll wait and see what happens. We'll keep you updated." And then they might call back after a couple hours and say, "Oh, it just crawled out and went into the forest, so it's okay." <laughs> so a very very different um, culture from the rest of the. Uh, 
from a lot of different other places. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that uh, research center around the Western Ghats? Yeah, so it's located about 800 meters, about 1,500 feet up uh, in elevation. Uh, it's not just uh, studies on king cobras, but a variety of different herbivora there, several of them endemics to the region. And yeah, also uh, other species, also small mammals, uh, certain shrews and porcupines, uh, pangolins that uh, are in and around the base. And, we, and yeah, so we've done, we supported studies, everything from, yeah, birds to butterflies to, yeah, studies on the uh, flora over there. Uh, the fish in the streams, some of them which are uh, endemic. And also, of course, uh, the very uh, enigmatic uh, flying lizard, the uh, Draco. Hmm. Didn't know they were out there. I thought they were only in Indonesia. Uh, we, we've got a couple of, uh, couple of our own species, I believe. There's one complex in the Western Ghats and then another in the Northeast. Okay. So uh, are there any other uh, research outposts or is the Western Ghats the only one? Well, we have uh, also the Garial Ecology Project, which is headed by Dr. Jeff Lang. Um, that's on the Trumbull River. And they're doing some incredible stuff with um, satellite radio telemetry and VHF telemetry and uh, finding that these uh, adults actually travel, uh, travel uh, couple of hundred kilometers, uh, about 100, 150 miles every year between uh, females in particular, in between uh, feeding sites and then back upriver to where their ancestral nesting nesting grounds are. So hmm. providing a lot of information for, for uh, wildlife managers. So it's really incredible stuff. So uh, if people want to find out more about the uh, Crocodile Bank and the work you guys do, uh, where can they find out about that? Well, you could start at our website, I guess. And that would be? That should be that's, uh, address crocodilebank.org. All right. So you can find out more about our research projects, our education programs, and I about the other field stations as we discussed. It's also about our publications. Uh, we have um, a journal called uh, Hammer Drive, which has been in existence since I think 1974, when it was just a, a cyclo-styled cycle um, block printed um, by a biannual issue, but that's gone online now. So you can check that out at hammerdrive.com. Org. That's it basically it. Essentially, deals with uh, largely with the herbivora fauna of um, South and West Asia. So everything from descriptions of new species to observations on in the wild and both amphibians and reptiles. All right, uh, yeah. and. And a uh, final question, uh, what is your favorite reptile? Ooh. Uh, that's a... Yeah, save the tough questions for last. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Uh, I, I, I'd have to say uh, a false gharial, uh, Thomas Toma. Just because they're, they're huge. They're huge and they grow to huge sizes. Um, they're, yeah, just, just beautiful, beautiful animals. And um, I can't go wrong with Temistema. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, well, uh, I guess you can because we we actually have our male um, 
a male and a female. The male is named uh, Psycho. And <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get to uh, that explanation. I think he was named actually before this incident, but he, uh, we actually have a technique which has worked well with American alligators and Nile crocs, even salties, where we actually partition the enclosure in half with poles and keep the male and female on either side and they can smell and see each other to some extent and then you remove the poles and see what happens and most of the time it's courtship and a bit of nose rubbing and saying hello. Uh, when we did that with this guy though, he went and sort of grabbed her by the tail and took half of it off. Um, so yeah, with with Kara, she she got she's okay now, and she she actually makes a nest and lays infertile eggs uh, every year. Mm. So we're we're kind of thinking of ways of putting them back together. Um, maybe with this guy's jaws rubber banded, so he can't <laughs> do anything. But of, of course, that doesn't allow him to do a lot of the usual courtship. Yeah bubbling and all aerial geezering and all that kind of stuff so and of course we don't want to lose them yeah yeah god forbid it's something uh since his snout is tied it's something obstructs his nostrils or yeah I don't want that so it, it's sort of a kind of we'll see situation um but yeah they Usually, just uh, before that, we usually just empty the water and uh, make it like so it's really clear, so you can see what's happening. And then you have to intervene, like we did. Uh, you, you intervene and separate them. Uh, a couple of times with salties, that hasn't been very fun because whilst the males are pretty large, the females are scared crapless and running all over the place, and if. A scared crocodile can also be a very dangerous crocodile if it runs runs into you by mistake. So yeah, <laughs> there's been some incidences of uh, yeah, they hopping and jumping around, and get out of the way. Yeah, thank God nothing uh, nothing serious, either to the animals or the uh, people. Yeah. Uh, was there anything else you would like to talk about? Um, yeah, uh, so, so that another one of our projects is also uh, a snake bite mitigation program. Um, so we have about 50 or 60,000 people uh, dying a year in India um, of um, bites from uh, what we call the big four, which is the uh, Soscale Viper. Uh, Ecus uh, and uh, Cobra, Naya, and Crate, and um, Russell's Wiper. Yeah. So we're actually, yeah, I'm not, I'm not part of that, but that's that's one of our, our programs. I mean, it does a huge amount of uh, awareness, especially in rural rural areas, rural agricultural areas, where it's really needed. Yeah. And so they're doing a great, great job and, uh, at snake bite mitigation, and uh, it's really making a difference, and especially when you're connecting with different groups and NGOs, spreading the word. Yeah. Yeah. I heard a story once that there's like a snake bite conference, some that talk about uh, snake bites, and I think it was Malaysia. And someone suggested something along the lines of trying to inoculate everyone to snake venom or like get them accustomed to snake venom or something like that. And someone just retorted, well, we could just give them shoes. That probably solve 90% of the problem. Yeah. That's that's a good... I don't know about the uh, medical stuff about inoculation. I guess you're saying giving them increasing doses of... Uh... Venom. Some, no. uh, yeah, okay. I guess guys like talk about like that well, one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing is also in a rice paddy, you don't really want to be wearing boots 
it was it's it's much easier to do that work barefoot because huh. you you're getting sucked inside there basically and can't get your feet up right so that's what a couple of people have said so maybe the simple thing is just to carry a stick and just poke around vegetation before you 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 step there maybe it's just something as simple as that yeah and uh, yeah, a few things which, of course, make a, a lot of sense is to use uh, mosquito nets. Uh, mos God, mosquito nets at night because a lot of the uh, quick bites just happen by people accidentally uh, rolling over onto the snake, and uh, well, the snake is out, like so, it's defending itself, and so it bites, and then. Either the person wakes up and they go to hospital, and or, or sometimes it's just, uh, oh, it was a mosquito or a centipede or something, and you don't wake up. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas um, cobras and russels, usually in agricultural landscapes usually when clearing a rice paddy and so on. that's that's usually the situation where people get uh, bitten yeah like uh, a lot of times they'll try to kill the snake which makes it worse than bitten again yeah yeah if you're trying to kill a snake that means you see the snake in reality the snake you should fear is the one you don't see yeah very true very true I get probably use the wrong term with fear, but the one you should look out for probably is probably the better way of phrasing that. Yeah, so that's that's part of the program is also highlighting these four species. Um, of course, we have king cobras also in India, but that's very very rarely that somebody is going to get bitten, and it's only happened a couple of times, and that's because of well, rescuers who are not rescuing in a professional manner uh free handling and whatnot yeah and of course the smaller pit vipers uh, but in the northeast you have uh, the meadows pit viper i believe and it's a much larger species and that is also a species which is a cause for uh medical concern i believe um i think with these conflictish whether it be crocodiles or snakes the closer you are to our urban center the more likely the chances is going to get reported on TV or in the newspaper or even radio, which a lot of people still use in the world, India. And a lot of stuff is unreported because it happens out in the boondocks and there's no news channel or anything there. So, yeah, nobody, I mean, never knows about it. So, uh, uh, other than just like education awareness, is there anything else that that snake bike program uh, does? That's yeah. That's also looking at um, beginning studies on looking at geographic variation in the venom, um, because the uh, this is a polyvalent which is made here um, in Chennai. I mean. Uh, the thing is that does not work a lot in sometimes in West India and North India. I mean, it's a, it's a huge geographic distribution of, uh, these, these species. Right? So I, I think it is going to be probably a need to make, uh, monovalent, uh, and even, and even for different, different regions for, for better efficiency. Yeah, yeah, so that's one of the things. Yeah. So it's a lot of collaboration between different institutions and um, doctors and hospitals and, of course, labs to study this uh, these differences between um, populations with regards uh, to the proteins in the venom, and uh, yeah, to make to make a more effective and uh, of course something that people can trust. Uh, rather than going to uh, traditional traditional healers, uh, because in the past it hasn't worked. Yeah. 
I mean, I've actually uh, had one experience where I've done, and it was a pretty remote area where we uh, took one guy who'd been bitten uh, at uh, dusk, uh, perfect timing, by uh, Russell's Viper when he was going home uh, with his goats. And his family immediately wanted to take him to uh, a traditional healer. Uh, they chant some stuff, and uh, no offense, but yeah, and then rub some. Could be uh, medicinal property for plants, but I mean, we know that antibiotic serum is the only thing. So at that point, we had to sort of make a decision and tell them no. Uh, we're taking him to a hospital, and so they were, they were sort of okay with that, but it took us four hours to get there, and uh, he was fading pretty fast, and yeah, if he if he had um, passed away on the way, it would have been interesting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we managed to get to a couple of um, low, closer clinics, and one of the doctors, I mean, the guy had killed the snake, but not gotten bitten again. Um, but he said it's a rat snake, it's not a Russell's viper, and he insisted that. And so we had to extend the journey yeah, into four, four and a half hours. And then finally, we got to a major hospital where a doctor like, came out of bed and uh, treated him. And yeah, he was okay uh, the next day. Um, the sad ending to the story is that I found out about six months, eight months later, he died of uh, kidney renal failure. So if he had uh, been to access antivenoms sooner, then maybe that wouldn't have been the case. Yeah. yeah. That's unfortunate. So yeah. is uh, a large problem with the snake bite problem in India, is that due to like lack of easy access to antivenom is that would that be a large part of it well all all government hospitals should have are supposed to have antivenom serum okay so so that's also uh, one of the big things about the um, the project and that the best way to treat somebody who has been bitten by um how to handle them how to take them to a hospital and this yeah that's been Movies, well, short short movies, uh, six or seven minutes have been translated into several different languages, and uh, yeah, aired, and so people get to understand the do's and don'ts in doing, and essentially the antivenom serum is the only cure. Uh, so there's no don't don't cut the wound, don't try to suck out the venom. Um, there's actually a tablet available which if you take it, it it's supposed to cure you wait i mean there's there's a lot of lot of superstitions that have to be uh, overcome yeah so uh anything other than the uh, snake bite program, want to go on about? I think we've uh, we covered the uh, crop stuff on the snake bite program, and uh, yeah. All right. So well, right uh, now, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Right now, we're just focused on our uh, developing our new master plan and getting new species and consultants for for these different species and looking at, yeah, these different guidelines uh, provided by AZA and EASA and yeah, just figuring out the best enclosures to make and versus public viewing. That's always, it's always, uh, what's the word, a, a tough one. Have the people to be able to see the animals and the animals to be comfortable and yeah. not stressed out. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I think that's uh sums it up. All right. Well uh uh thanks for coming on to the show and look forward to talking to you some other time. Okay. Thanks a lot. Right. My pleasure.
Bye.